Gentlemen, we are uh, pleased this morning to welcome as a guest and our guest teacher, John Wood, who is the senior pastor at Cedar Springs Church in Knoxville, a sister church of Second Prez's. And John is a very special guest because he told me as, as we were walking in today that he has known Sandy Wilson, he can assure us, longer than anyone else in this room and has been a brother in Christ of his for uh, longer than anyone. So they are very close close friends, and uh, one of the reasons John is here is that he is one of our guest teachers for the Christian Life Conference that's being hosted here at Second Pres this weekend. Uh, it starts tomorrow night, Friday night, um, at 6.30, uh, and John and Richard Pratt, who is uh, also a well-known speaker and teacher, will be here this weekend focusing on uh, a look at the last days, um, which should be fascinating, and we look forward to that. All of you are welcome. All are invited. So if you can make it, the schedule is basically tomorrow night and Saturday morning, and then they'll be teaching on Sunday during the regular services too. But uh, I hope that you will uh, help me welcome John here. We are so glad you're here, and thank you very much for being our guest teacher today. See, this was designed for someone bigger than I am, someone like Sandy. So I feel like I'm hiding out from you here. It's good to be back again in Memphis. I've had the joy uh, over the years since Sandy's been here anyway of, of coming over every few years and uh, being with you. So it feels a bit like home. I do go way back with Sandy and should know him well enough to realize that when it comes to dress codes, even here in Memphis, I should have checked with someone else. Uh, I, look, I saw all of you fellows, most of you guys walking in this morning casually and was thinking, you know, if only I'd known. Uh, last time Sandy was with us for a conference over in Knoxville, where I'm pastor, um, the Sunday morning, of course, we, you know, we wore a tie. But I told him Sunday evening, you don't need to wear a tie tonight. It'll be casual. And so he came back with a jacket on, but uh, no tie, but didn't seem as comfortable as Sandy usually does. Monday, which is a very casual day, showed back up with a tie on. He said, I'm sorry, John, I just can't. So um, I thought coming over here that uh, you all would all be in ties. Uh, we don't wear bib overalls over there, but it is somewhat, it is somewhat more casual than I think you uh, Memphis uh, gentlemen are. Uh, it's, it's good to be... In, with a group of men as well, because we can tell stories on one another that probably wouldn't be appropriate if, if the ladies were in here with us. There aren't any ladies, are there? I'll tell you one Sandy story. You can get him with us. Sandy, you're not in here, are you? I think he had to fly out. Uh, he had a board meeting, and he wasn't sure when he was flying out, but he's not here. So, uh, Sandy, actually, uh, you may know his story, but uh, he was uh, with Bethlehem Steel. Uh, operating out of Boston, he was salesman for the Northeast area and lived right around the corner from the church where I was in training during seminary years. And my older brother, who's a surgeon, uh, wonderful Bible teacher, taught a Sunday school class. And Sandy and Allison had their first little baby, Drew, and decided, well, we've got a child now. We probably ought to, for his sake, be in church somewhere. Um, I think Allison probably wanted to go to church, but Sandy, I, I don't think it had much interest. So First Presbyterian Quincy was right around the corner, 
and they decided to try that. They came in. They went to my older brother's Sunday school class, and God got a hold of Sandy's heart, just saved him. And so my brother said, hey, John, I've got this sharp guy in here. He's a new believer. Why don't you start getting together with him? He's about your age, and uh, you can disciple him. Well, it became a deep mutual friendship and mutual growth together in Christ as we'd meet together on Saturday mornings. But uh, I'd grown up, I'd spent my teenage years in North Carolina, had a southern dad, but I realized that not everything was the same, this side of the mountains as the other. And I realized Sandy's not from Memphis. He's from over where I've lived now for almost 20 years. But uh, we'd had a little church event where we'd gone down to the Cape, and one of the guys had a lovely uh, summer place on what they call ponds there. They're actually nice big lakes. We were all going down to go swimming. Sandy and I were talking. We'd been having coffee. We got almost down to the lake, and I said, oh, I'll, I'll see you. I'll meet you back here. He said, well, what's wrong? Do you forget something? And I said, well, you know, all that coffee, I've, I've got to go back up and just use the head. And he said, oh, I can tell you're not from Tennessee. I was just going to go in the pond while I was swimming. <laughs> you can get, you know, he's such a gentleman. You can remind him of how he was back when I knew him. Um, well, that wasn't a very auspicious way to begin a Bible study, was it? <laughs> Uh, Sandy said this was speaker's choice. I know he's been teaching through First Peter. And uh, I thought, this is a group of guys who get up early in the morning to gather together and study God's Word. And there are so many wonderful venues available to us, so many resources. You have things like this. There's Bible Study Fellowship. There's uh, the courses that you can take in this church and probably in other places in town to learn how to study God's Word. We're almost assaulted uh, with teaching on television and on the radio, uh, invitations to sign up for different courses. There's no lack of opportunity to put oneself in the way of the Word as it's being taught. There's no lack of Bibles and of resources available for anyone who wants to study God's Word. Why is it then that the church, as is so often observed by sociologists of religion, the church in America has never in its history had so many large, seemingly dynamic congregations and so little impact on our culture? Why is it that so many of us are studying the Bible together and learning so much about God's Word and yet are continuing to live lives that look just like the lives of our neighbors? Why is it that the social pathologies that mark our culture are statistically just as prevalent within the church within Christian lives and Christian families, as in the world. Where is the power of the Word of God? What's the sense studying, 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 if it's not transforming us? Uh, I have been thinking a lot about this. And uh, in studying through James toward the end of last year, was very struck by a passage that I'd read over and over throughout the years in my devotions. 
but that had never struck me in this way before. And I thought, okay, this this will preach. It was preaching to my own heart. It was convicting. And I thought this certainly is part of the answer, part of the reason that the word doesn't seem to be having its way with us as God promises us that it should. So I'd invite you to turn with me to James. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, I think the uh, authorized version in this church is the NIV. Is that correct? The uh, Northern Invasion Version. Uh, But I've got the uh, English Standard Version. I thought, you know, English Standard, that just has this sort of ring, but that's what you ought to have. And then, of course, wouldn't you know it, the Baptists had the trumpet. They've just come out with the Christian Standard Version. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure you know the book of James. Have you studied James here in the Amen Breakfast group? Well, I'll confess to you, this year is my 30th year since... Uh, 30th year since ordination. And I'm a Bible teacher. I'd preach through, I think, every other book of the New Testament and a lot of the books of the Old Testament and had never taught through James, uh, probably for the same reasons that Luther struggled with it. I felt it was a great book of collection of Proverbs, good thoughts, biblical stuff, but there just didn't seem to me to be enough grace in it. And yet, as I resolved that I would study through it, I found it life-transforming, filled with grace, and challenging me at the very places where I needed most to be challenged. Uh, Just a little background on the theme of it before we read these verses. James is laying out for us the way of wisdom. The biblical context, many times in the Psalms, certainly In the Proverbs as well, we are told that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so for many of us, we think that wisdom begins and ends with fear of God. And we know that it's not merely the abject fear of the powerless before the powerful, of the slave before the master. But it's the awe and circumspection due unto the Lord. But for many of us, we never get past that. We don't hear the Bible saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We hear it as if it said the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And what James does is to start at the very point where we are most challenged in our fear of the Lord in times of trouble. Times when we're either going to fear what's out there, fear what's happening to us, or recognize that the only one worth fearing in life and in death is the Lord, who is sovereign over all of our affairs of life. And so he opens by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Realize what's going on. Life is not to be feared. Wisdom starts in the fear of the Lord, but he takes us very quickly to trust in the Lord. God is on your side. God is not against you. He's for you. God is taking these things in your life and using them in order to build a deep steadiness within you, teaching you through times of great difficulty that He indeed is your Redeemer and teaching you to trust Him. 
And so the way of wisdom leads from fear to faith. But it doesn't stop there. For most of us Reformed folk, Presbyterians, faith is everything. And I'm not downplaying for a moment either the fear of the Lord or faith in the Lord. We, we stand by faith. It's grace, faith, that connection. But that is not where God wants to take us. And as we read on in chapter 1, we see that where God is taking us through this, on this way of wisdom, is from fear to faith into the settled, loving friendship with Him for which we were created. And that's where God wants to take us, not just someday, but even now. In fact, that, that's a, that would be a good way. Uh, if we had been given the assignment to open up the theme of the conference, that the last days aren't somewhere out in the future. They began at Pentecost. We live in the last days, and God is inviting us through fear and through faith and through the difficulties that we face as our, as our faith is strengthened and steadfastness, uh, perseverance, I think the NIV says, increases. We are being drawn even now, into that settled relationship of loving intimacy with Him. That's what He has for us. That's where He wants to take us. And, and so you say, well, how does that take you past faith? Well, I think of my relationship with my wife. We've been together now a whole lot longer than we've been apart. And uh, somebody might say to me, do you trust your wife? In other words, do you have faith in her? And my response would be, well, of course, but I mean, we've been together so long, I don't think in those terms. It's not a matter of whether I trust her. There was a time when I was dating her when I was asking, is this someone I can trust? And she was asking that of me. There was a time probably early in marriage when we, I was built, growing in my trust of her. Am I going to entrust my deepest hopes and dreams and desires and passions to her? And she to me. But we're way past that. We are one. We are in a settled relationship of the unity of love. Doesn't mean we always agree. Doesn't mean she still doesn't wonderfully put me in my place. I think that's the Sandy. If Sandy told stories on me, they'd probably be about ways that Marianne has delightfully put me down in public and popped my pretension. She's just great. In fact, I shared with the guys at the table this morning. To me, just the funniest thing I've heard coming out of this whole primary season because it reminded me so much of the way that Marianne puts me in my place. Some of you may have heard Mitt Romney uh, the other night was going on and on about his wife, said they'd known each other since childhood and had dated since teenage years. And he said he, he had recently asked her, did you ever in your wildest dreams think that I'd be running for president? And she said, Mitt, you're not even in my wildest dreams. <laughs> now, that... That's something Mary Ann would have said. <laughs> but, but there's a unity. I can laugh when she says that because we're one. Marriage is a picture of the relationship into which God is inviting us, you and me, on this way of wisdom. He wants us to be one in Him, with Him. And that's why He says that the crown of life, He has prepared the crown of life not for those who fear Him, not for those who trust Him, but for those who love Him. If you've got your Bible open now, you can look at chapter 1, verse 12. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So, to cut to the chase, I'm taking too long on this introduction. Um, God invites you and me, through Jesus Christ, into the path of wisdom. The wisdom that isn't the wisdom of the philosophers. It's not the wisdom of this world. It is the wisdom that God can give and that he promises, as James tells us, to those who ask him without doubting that he is willing to give that gift to us. He invites us into this relationship of love. He makes tremendous promises to us. And the way that he accomplishes this in verse 18, James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits is the word that was used of Jesus. Paul used it several times, he used it First Corinthians uh, 15 used it in Colossians 1 when he spoke of Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. James is now telling us that we've been given that task. Even as Jesus breathed on his disciples, said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You and I have been entrusted with the same ministry that was given to Jesus. And it's namely this. God wants people in meeting us to know who he is. And in meeting us to know who they were created to be as people in his own image after his likeness. The mark is this. It is people who love God, people who love one another, and people who lovingly serve the world. That's the mark of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Why is it then, we come to the original question, that we have this word, we've been given the spirit, and yet we far too often fail to realize in our own lives this deep wisdom which God stands ready to give us. So join me in reading from verse 19 through verse 25. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. James is telling us here that for this word of truth to have its way within us and to do in us what the Spirit wants to do through it. That's the Spirit is the power at work within us, God's Spirit. But it's through the agency of the word that he wants to accomplish his work. In order for the word to do its work, you and I must intentionally create space within our lives for the word 
to do its work. And I think it's that it, it is at precisely this point that most of us fail. I can certainly speak out of my own experience. I'm a pretty disciplined guy. I set my task and I say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm that way about my devotional life. These are the times of day when I'm going to pray. These are the places where I'm going to go, get alone, and have my time. This is my ride. This is my uh, plan for reading through the Bible uh, this year, and etc. You know, th- this is my prayer. Th- I've got the whole thing structured, and I can go about it the same way I go about every other task. And James says three ways. Three absolutely crucial moves that you and I must make if we're going to create space for God's word to transform us. And the first is we need to create space within to hear the word of the Lord. Did you see that in those opening verses we read? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. The silence that is required to hear God speak. You and I, at least I know it's true of me, I suspect it's true of you, that we can read an entire text of Scripture, perhaps even with a pen in hand and jot notes and words and at one level be operating and yet be doing business at the, at the another level. Is that only true of me? I know sometimes when my wife is talking to me, I'm looking at her, and all of a sudden she'll stop and say, John, what did I just say to you? And I've been looking at her and nodding and everything, but she's come to recognize that peculiar look in my eye when I'm not actually looking at her, but at something a mile behind her head, uh, some plan I'm making, some, uh, something I've been through that I'm reworking. We, we've all been there. And woe to me when I can't tell her <laughs> what she just said to me. But I'm that way with the Lord all the time. I sit there, I read, I know this stuff. I've read this book so many times. I've taught these texts. Outlines are flying by me. At one level, I'm operating. But it's not really there. Why? Because I haven't just shut up to listen. I'm still going like this. And why does he bring up anger? Well, I don't know about you, but I am never noisier inside than when I'm mad. I may be sitting there in the middle of, of the room... And nobody else knows I'm talking. But if I am angry, inside it's going something like this. Well, you just stand by, Buster. When you finish saying what you've got to say, you know, I'm going to set you straight. You haven't even seen three of the absolutely crucial issues here, and I'm about to reveal them to you. Or, you know, I'm going to go back. When I see that, I may be sitting there looking like this. I may be reading God's Word, but I'm playing it. Because I'm churning inside. I've got something I want to do. I want to finish these devotions so I can go out and fix that and set those people straight and put things in order. And James says that you and I cannot hear God's word until 
we create a place of silence to hear. How quiet are you when you read God's Word? Do you seek a quiet place? No radios, no television in the background, no noise, no grandkids in my case now running in and out. The door is closed. Do you get before the Word and say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Eugene Peterson has a beautiful expression. He says, We need to learn to turn our eyes into ears. And he says that until we've turned our eyes into ears, we cannot hear God's Word. What does he mean? He means as long as we're conscious of sort of reading the Word here and analyzing it, and we're in control of it, until suddenly God is speaking to us, we are in His presence, we are hearing Him address us until that moment, we have not yet begun to hear the Word as God wants us to hear it. And that requires a whole different discipline than most of us have. You know, most of the verses in the Bible that we use to try to get people to do Bible study actually don't say anything about Bible study. They're talking about meditation. Meditate on God's Word. The, all those psalms that we use to say you ought to study the Word are actually about meditating on the Word. And meditation presupposes study. You have to study it first. You have to do the work of making sure you understand what it means. What do these words mean? What does this sentence mean? What is this, what is this paragraph about? What's that story that Jesus told about? You have to do inductive Bible study. But you merely do inductive Bible study to set the table and prepare the food. Most of us walk away from the meal before we ever eat it. Having done your study, having figured out what it says, having made your notes, having said, okay, now I understand this text. Now it's time to hear it. And that's the point where the ancient Christians entered into something called Lectio Divina. Have you, are you all familiar with the term Lectio? It just is a fancy Latin phrase for divine reading or spiritual reading. And they began by getting silent before the Word of God. Silencio. Be silent. Lord, cleanse me now. Purify my heart. Open my ears. Open my mind. Open the affections of my heart. I love every gift of yours more than I love you. Have mercy on me. Let me love you more. Open me to hear you speak. I need to hear from you through your word. You begin to seek that silence. And then they would read. They'd read the word for understanding. And then that was lectio. And then meditatio. They would begin to meditate on the word. And meditation was not an Eastern sort of emptying meditation. It was an engagement with the full sanctified imagination. We can use our imaginations to fantasize. But God gave us the gift of imagination so that we might meditate. In meditation, you enter that text, you begin to walk around it. Jesus is speaking to a woman and you try to see her through Jesus' eyes. You try to see him through hers. You try to imagine being a disciple listening in. You walk around that text and begin to... The words for meditation are literally to chew. You're eating the text. You're getting it in. 
You're asking God's Spirit to begin to take it and work it into you. And as God begins to teach you something deeper, convict you or challenge you or enlighten you in a way you haven't been before, you turn to oratio, prayer. You begin to offer this back up to Him in prayer. And then contemplatio, that's where you rest in His presence. It's like when you've been together with a group of friends and, and you love each other and, and perhaps a family gathering and you've all talked and laughed and enjoyed each other and enjoyed the meal and now you're full and everybody's done talking but you're not ready to leave the table yet. And you just sort of push back and sit there for a minute and you're looking at each other. This has been so sweet. That's contemplation. Enjoying the presence of the Lord and then going out. To live it. Incarnatio. Okay. You get the picture. All I'm saying is you and I need to get serious about not being so limited in our academic approach. We study the word as if we were. You've probably heard this before. Lots of people are saying it now. But the great problem we have in the West is that we study the Bible for information rather than for formation. And the aim of the Bible is not merely to inform, but to form, to shape. And academic-type inductive Bible study doesn't shape us. It simply sets the table. So, first of all, create space to hear very quickly. Secondly, create space to receive the word that you've heard. When you've heard it, you now need to receive it so that, as he says, it will go down deep and begin to bear fruit. How does he say that? Verse 21, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I think the reason that we have so many folk who know so much about the Bible, starting with preachers, but whose lives are really not much different than others, is that we never really receive the Word. That seed of the Word, to change metaphors, as he does, has to get down deep into the soil of our innermost being in order for it to begin to grow and bear fruit and make us like Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Well, he tells us. He says we have to go to war with everything in our hearts that is against Jesus. The filthiness and rampant wickedness. Uh, those of you who travel a lot, uh, maybe as we get older it's not as bad, although I've found I still struggle. I'm a little like David Duplessis. When David Duplessis was in his mid-70s or early 80s, he was doing a pastor's conference. And a young man, a young pastor there said, Dr. Duplessis, at what age does one uh, begin to not have to struggle so much with lust anymore? And he said, well, why in the world would you ask a man of my age? I'm not nearly old enough to be able to, to answer that question. Uh, it's tough traveling sometimes. You get out there, you get alone, and you go to the room, you're whipped, you're beat, and there's just all kinds of things on television there. Uh, luring you and saying, well, just flip over here and watch this for a while. And it may not be an adult movie. It may just be, you know, something that as a child of God, you know, you don't need to be watching. 
because it is feeding the weeds in your own heart. It is making you lust and desire after the things of this world, whatever they are, wherever your particular demons attack you. And we live in this chamber of noise. I just got back from India and I had the most wonderful time uh, ministering. And it was such a time of intimacy with Christ. It was just so sweet. And I realized one of the reasons was I was staying in a place with no TV. I didn't bring my computer. There was no internet. There were no distractions. I was listening. I was wide open listening. There wasn't this bombardment of other messages that I was having to try to sort through and filter out. And so James says, you and I have to be willing to go to war in our own hearts with everything that we know grieves the Holy Spirit. And the truth is most of us simply aren't willing to do it. As Dallas Willard has said, for most of us, the gospel is a matter of sin management. We say, you know, I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Uh, We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. Thank God for that. Uh, And we would never be so crass as to say, I'll sin the more that grace may abound. But we do it day after day after day. We do what we choose to do. And then figure we'll ask God to forgive us at night. And that's why. The number of divorces, the number of abortions, the number you name the social pathology, whatever the measure, is just as high in evangelical churches as it is in the world around us. James says, brothers, you can't do that. You have to root from your heart all filthiness, wickedness, what you know is contrary to the will of God, or you will not be able to receive the word. I I don't know how how it is trying to grow a lawn here in Memphis. I know you're a very different, uh, you have a different climate than we have over in uh, Knoxville. But we're one of those aggravating transition uh, zones where half of the year it's a Bermuda lawn uh, climate and the other half of the year it's a fescue lawn climate. So if you choose to have a Bermuda lawn, your lawn's dead, you know, a quarter of the year anyway. If you choose to have a fescue lawn, you just have a terrible time keeping it alive during the summer uh, unless you have everything covered up with trees. And I've got big front yard, and I love fescue, and I just go to war every year with that Bermuda grass. And I have neighbors who are Bermuda grass people and a golf course right across the way. So, I mean, everything is against me. And I think I've got it. I've killed all the Bermuda. And, of course, you know, the roots go down all the way to China. But I've got it out of there. I've overseeded. And here it comes. And lo and behold, when the hot weather comes, all of a sudden I'm walking through the yard and I begin to see under the fescue. There it is. It's back. I thought I had it down at the crossroads, drove a a stake through its heart last fall. But now here it's coming back. And so I have to keep going to war. I've got something now that I can put on it that doesn't kill the, the fescue. If I put it on lightly enough, it does suppress the Bermuda. But I'll tell you, that battle with my lawn has been for me a living parable of the battle in my heart. Every time I think I've, I've dealt with that, it's gone. Give it a few months. Let me be careless. And all of a sudden, there it's coming again. Just there below, all the appearance of Christ-likeness. Oh, 
there's that, where did that tentacle come from? I thought I had the lid on that box. And brothers, you and I are in a war. And if we don't realize it, and if we are not intentionally engaged in that warfare, the word, you can come here every week. You can go to BSF. You can get up every morning at 5 o'clock and, and do an academic inductive Bible study. You can teach Sunday school. You can preach sermons. But at the end of the day, you're going to say, Lord, why is it? Why is it that there's just no power in my life? Why is it that I'm still so in love with this world and so little in love with you? I, not to belabor it, but imagine the way that we pray. Think about your own prayer life coming out of the Word. Do you find yourself coming out of a study of the Word as the old gospel song says, lost in wonder, love and praise. Wanting just to rest before the Lord and praise Him. Or is praising the Lord something you know that you ought to do, but it's sort of difficult to do. I mean, you know, how, how much can you do? Well, praise you, Lord. You're, you're great. You're wonderful. You're, you're really terrific. Um, now could I get to the, this list of things that I need for you to help me with today? I'm, I'm great at intercession. Lord, my kids are facing this. Lord, I've got this coming up. Lord, you know, we're looking toward that. Lord, this person over here is sick. Lord, I've got my list. And I think I've prayed when I've given God the list for the morning. Imagine having a relationship with your wife that goes like this. She comes in, you sit down at breakfast, you eat in silence. And then before you go to work, you get up and you say, let me tell you this morning, my dear, that you are wonderful. You're still lovely after all these years. I think you're just great. I just I praise you, I thank you, I love you. Now, these are the things I'd like for you to do today. Um, you know, I need to get the garage door fixed. I need to have you go to the groceries, get this. Would you run over here and do that? You give the list, and then you say, thank you very much. I'll see you this evening. Tell you again how wonderful you are and give you another list. Of course, you know, it's an absurdity. But that's how most of us relate to God, because we have not created space for his work to begin to transform us and take us into that deep relationship of love. Finally, we just create space to do it. We take what God is teaching, what we are hearing, what we are receiving, and we have to go out and begin to walk it out. And God is going to put us in places where we are not comfortable because that's where we grow. That's where we learn steadfastness. And that's what this... Uh, at first reading, a little bit perplexing analogy of the mirror is about. Have you ever read that and wondered what, what did he really mean by that? When he says, be doers of the word, verse 22, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, etc. What, what's he talking about here? Just this. I am staying around the corner at the Holiday Inn, and you know, my alarm went off five and got up. It was very nice because it's actually six o'clock, my inner time, got an extra hour of sleep. Went in and took a look in the mirror, thought, okay, things aren't any better. It's gotten even worse. You know, this is it, but uh, let's do the best we can. Got in the shower, you know, got out, dried off, brushed my teeth, got the steam off the mirror, so that I wouldn't cut myself too badly or take off this scraggly little beard. 
Uh, I, actually, the reason Sandy saw me last time, he said, when did you start growing a beard, John? I keep it real short. I said, well, actually, I always used to grow one on vacation, but I'd come back and, and shave it off. And a year ago, we came back from a vacation. I started to shave it off, and Mary Ann said, well, just leave this little bit here. And I said, you know, we've been married 35 years. Why, why now? You want me to leave this? She said, John, you just don't have enough going on anymore. <laughs> so, you know, I thought, okay, for Marianne, I need to see what I'm doing. So, I, you know, I shaved and combed what little hair I have left and kind of, you know, put on my tie because I thought that was what people in Memphis did. And, uh, you know, looked again and said, okay, that's about the best I can do. You know, I don't have much going on anymore, but this, this is as good as it gets. And walked out to the car. Now, when I walked out to the car, I did not think again about what I'd seen in the mirror until just now when I began talking to you. Can you imagine the, the absurd narcissism of someone who sort of gets up in the morning and fixes his hair and checks his face out and then as he leaves kind of runs back to look again and then says, oh, if I can just keep this image before me. All throughout the day, what joy that will bring me to think about how I look. No, that's sick. You look in the mirror to kind of make sure you don't have anything unseemly coming out of your nose or stuck in your teeth. And, and having said this is as good as it gets, you leave it. You're done. But we treat God's Word like that. We look at it. We see it. We think we've heard it. And then we say, I've had my devotions. I've done my Bible study. Now, what do I have next? We pull out our Palm Pilot or check our iPhone. Or if we're really primitive, we open our little day timer and, and look to see what our schedule is. And, and I'm off to the next thing now. That's done. I had my time with the Lord. I had my devotions. He, he ought to bless me today. I mean, whatever the Word is supposed to do, I did it. I'm done with it. And it's just as though I'd looked in a mirror and walked away. And James says, no, we look into the perfect law of God. We look into it. We don't just look at it like looking in a mirror. We look into it. We're going deep into it. Not satisfied to stay on the surface. Because we want that Word to surround us and get in us and embrace us and make us whole. So, that's what I've been thinking a lot about in my own life, about all of the ways that I permit the noisiness of this life, this great chamber of noise in which we live, to keep me from actually hearing what God is saying, even as I'm sitting there reading, studying, perhaps preparing things to say to other people. There's, there are weeds that I let grow up in my own heart that choke out the Word. Jesus told a parable about that one time. The, the cares and the concerns and the desire for riches and all the stuff that grows up and chokes out the Word. I'm supposed to clear all of that filthiness, rampant wickedness that keeps the Word from going in deep and being received. I've got to go to war with myself. And then, finally, I'm to do it because salvation is ultimately a life. It's a life. You and I are called to become increasingly 
like Jesus. We're to be the first fruits. We are in our lives supposed to give people a reason to believe that the gospel is true. And most people who don't believe say that they don't believe because of the Christians that they know. Brothers, make way for the word. Make a place. Let it go deep. Let it get in you. Turn eyes into ears. And let God have his way with you. And he has promised. It's his promise. It's his honor at stake. That he will lead you from fear to faith. And through times of difficulty where you learn perseverance. He will lead you into a settled relationship of intimacy and love for which you and I were created. Lord, work that in our hearts. Don't let us just be hearers of the word. Make us doers. Let us incarnate your spirit, your word, your truth, your wisdom, and carry you even this morning into every relationship that we encounter today to the honor and glory of your name. Amen.